Welcome to the Propaganda Report. This is Monica Perez. And I'm Brad Binkley. In these corona times, I think many of us are wondering how we got so coweringly dependent for every necessity of life on a system totally beyond our control. I recall a gun rights advocate once say, you may someday have no hope but prayer for a good guy with a gun to come secure your home. But I never imagined that someday I might have nothing more than a prayer to secure my next meal. Well, our guest today did imagine that and has been doing something about it. From exploring his materials ever since I first heard of him, I find a simple description eludes me. So I'm going to go with the easiest <laughs> label. He is a green anarchist with so much more. And we're going to dig into all of it. So without further ado, let me introduce Bellamy Fitzpatrick. Bellamy, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for your time. I imagine you're a very busy person in every way, both in how you conduct your life and how you share your message and insights with people who, like me, who this is just was one of those situations I always knew that there are whole ways of thinking I never even thought of, you know, like just whole big picture things. And your when you were on uh, Pete Canones's podcast, mm -hmm. and I had just read, I never even thought of reading Ted Kaczynski's manifesto. And then like they did some Netflix thing, they were talking about it. And he has he put out a book recently kind of probably rehash of that it included the manifesto called technological slavery. I don't know mm -hmm. what possessed me to buy it. And then I bought it. And I was like, Oh, wow, uh, I get it. And that would explain why my efforts to kind of promote liberty and restore the Bill of Rights, like it just feels kind of hopeless, like we've moved beyond that. And then Pete said, you should listen to Bellamy Fitzpatrick. I just did a podcast <laughs> with him. And then I just had to pick your brain myself. But I don't think my listeners really know too much about green anarchy or kind of where you're coming from or why even that you you know for me identifying technology as the problem was a big leap and it was recent so i just wonder if you could give us a little a little bit about your background what a green anarchist is and kind of um what's your bigger philosophy maybe what you're doing yeah sure so i guess i'm not sure how to unpack that i it's I too much we, that would be the whole yeah. hour i'm not saying anything else the entire time <laughs> well <laughs> Well, I, I unpacked a bit of my story on, on Pete's podcast, and I'm not sure how much your audiences overlap, and I would hate to be redundant and talk about myself a lot. So I guess I'll just well, say I'm I'm yeah, someone who... Free. I'm sorry, go ahead. Feel free to you know give us anything. It doesn't matter. It's this okay, kind of sure. stuff. It was so sure. new to me that hearing it twice would be a benefit. Okay, sure. Sure. So I'm, I'm someone who... You know, I think like a lot of people, I'm, I was drawn to radical politics through early experiences. So grew up with a, you know, somewhat dysfunctional family. I loved them very much, but there were problems in the home and uh, the police got involved at various points. So I think at an early stage of life, I was sort of inoculated with this idea that the state can be an adversarial force and that it's not just there to help you and, you know, secure your safety and so forth. And eventually um, seeing uh, the little bit of forest around my home clear cut at a young age, I was very troubled and disturbed by that and wondered, why are these things happening? 
to the natural world around me? Why are these things happening to my family? And then as I became a teenager, I became more and more troubled by what seemed like a kind of world system that was just devouring nature. And it was only a few years later that I became more able to kind of piece it together into uh, the beginnings of a cohesive worldview, I would say around the age of 19 was when I started calling myself an anarchist generally. And then a few years after that, I got more and more into the green tendency. And part of that came out of experiences doing various kinds of, I guess, what I would call normative left activist kind of stuff. And very quickly seeing the limits of that and how so much of it was aimed at really petitioning this ruling system to accommodate you better. And even when that activism involved more superficially adversarial tactics, like, you know, uh, street protests that edge into being riots or blocking things and um, the, you know, these sort of normal activisty things of, you know, chaining yourself to something or something like that. It's still, when you got past that kind of superficial oppositional nature, you're still basically asking the state, this bureaucracy, these uh, corporate forces to ch to change on behalf of your begging. And so it, I quickly got frustrated with that and and got more into green anarchism, which I guess if I were to put it in a phrase would just be anarchism that uh, if, if you consider anarchism an ethical system that then leads to a particular political view, I would call green anarchism doing that, but in a way that really looks at ecology and technology as fundamental components of that. And I think you can, you can trace it. Um, well, you can trace it way back because you see there are uh, various ancient thinkers um, in the West and elsewhere who were concerned with the role of technology. You see that in, for example, the ancient Taoists. You see it in Plato, actually. Uh, you see it in the Stoics. But I guess I would say the modern tendency really got going with people like Henry David Thoreau and Leo Tolstoy. Thoreau uh, and Tolstoy, both um, anarchists of a kind, I would say, and who were not just concerned with political authority, but kind of the feeling-toned fabric of life. What does everyday life look like? What are your relationships? Are they with living beings or are they with these kind of unnatural settings that we create for ourselves? Tolstoy, being a Christian, was very enamored of voluntary simplicity and, and this kind of um, uh, immediacy of life experience that meant uh, eschewing technology to a certain degree. You also see uh, the 19th century geographer and anarchist Elisee Recluse, who was really, I think, one of the first modern Western people to be talking about what we would now call bioregionalism. So this idea that different ways of life are suitable to different local ecologies, and we should actually be thinking about how to integrate ourselves with the ecology around us and not just have this sort of standardized uh, industry-driven way of life that is papering over the relationships with the organisms in our immediate environment. May I 
Yeah, I yes, think please. That, I, I, I'm just going to wonder. Going, yeah, no, I can. <laughs> I, I, I could just literally could just I, li- I do listen to your stuff. Like I will listen to you for hours without saying anything because I do. But I think we, I just wanted to point out something that I, I notice a lot. Two things. One is that the it seems to me that the biology, the bioregionalism. See, this is the thing I'm trying to like reconcile. I'm a I'm a libertarian, mm-hmm. hardcore yes. libertarian, very like black and white kind of libertarian. But it's not that I'm <laughs> closed minded about it. I will, oh, you know, I get I get this, and I'm beginning to like think beyond this with you know because it goes to what you were saying about when you're chaining yourself to a tree, you're just begging. And yeah. I feel like I've been thinking about what to do how to restore justice, sanity, whatever within the system. And I think the system has, is beyond, you know, has grown beyond that being able to constrain it. But I feel like as a, as a libertarian, I still don't want to use like a force or a higher mm-hmm. level of, of um, organization in order to solve these problems. And the bioregionalism thing makes me think back at, what maybe the emergence of culture as a reflection of the geography and the geology around them. And that that's how that actually the, the civilization, the technology, the, the pushing down of an overarching control structure onto that Mm -hmm. was what went wrong. So for me, I'm like, as a libertarian, how do you get, how do you get people to respect the environment without like forcing them? But it's it's kind of in a way looking to that the that the system the overlay is like a mistake <laughs> you know is like a yeah. is like a, a corruption of maybe the dual nature of man whatever like it's just a purely materialistic power structure that's put over what the natural relationships would be and and so it's easier for me to reconcile the libertarian thing when you look at what like closer to our natural organization would look like mm-hmm. by looking back. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. like the bioregionalism idea, but I, I wonder how to get for what did you what did you want to say, Binkley? I have a question about something that you said. You you said that I think you you were you saying that you got frustrated with corporate type of activism? Um well frustrated, I guess, uh, with the the sort of normal left activism, like the you know, doing these protests, doing these uh blockades of things, doing these um this kind of standard stuff from anything from campus activism to kind of big organizations yeah that, yeah it just i i was doing that for a few years fairly in a fairly involved way and uh, every time i just thought this is going nowhere for one reason or another it it was would be obvious to me that yeah. it wasn't really going to go anywhere that's interesting. We cover a lot of that stuff and notice that it is often controlled from the top and then the goalposts mm-hmm. are often shifted about what the goals are to kind of string the activists along. Yes. Yes. I think that's exactly right. Exactly. I saw that in action when the students kept protesting austerity in Europe. And at the same time, I was protesting Obamacare and some tourist on a train in D.C. said to me, what's all this ruckus about? And I said, well, you know how you guys go out on the street and beg for uh, an end to austerity and more government spending. We were actually fighting to have more, <laughs> having less of it. Yeah. And and it, and that's when it started to occur to me, like those people, the argument, the best argument for more liberty 
is in the big sense of the word is that with the with the state really you can't even like vote with your dollars you can't vote with your feet you are you just have to beg Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah to to beg and to vote and um and to really just play this role in one way or another that is giving legitimacy to the state, right? Whether you vote or you protest, either way, you are, you're uh, reifying and emphasizing the idea that these are the masters of your life and you relate to them in various ways, but it's always about getting them to do something for you. And, and yes, they, and, they frame it and set the terms. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I have a question though, uh, sure. that relates to that from the Kaczynski stuff and i know it sounds scared like oh tegzinski i'm also i just finished his or i'm almost finished with the biography harvard and the unabomber just to kind of put my feet on the ground like you have to separate out his thoughts with his actions his own psychological problems but 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 his thoughts and he admits himself in his manifesto that they're not original and he cites references stuff but he really writes them very well in a way that's very accessible so i found it helpful to refer to what he is saying and a little harder to get through like a and thank you very much yeah, for the Scopina yeah, recommendation sure. it's gonna take me some time yeah. but what kaczynski said is basically that i think if i'm not getting it wrong that technology runs the show and that it's going to that we all pivot to technology i think it's an Elul concept and that we we serve technology and and kaczynski extrapolate it to where it might end up and he said it could end up where machines are needed to run machines or people run machines or whatever but ultimately it's going to get too complicated even for us to control it and i i'm not sure i understood him 100 right but my question is kind of it looks to me that technology and i can see it because i read about rockefeller foundation about the world economic forum i read their white papers i read their manif- their own manifestos and they talk talk about using technology, you know, they say it's to serve man, but they are actively expressly pushing and promoting technology. And I think it's clear in the Corona times that that is what they are doing. And it's as if they are using it to, to, you know, they want to use it to control the world, but do you think that they will lose control of it or do they have a sense? I mean, this is really pushing it out there but do you i mean do you think that's right that they they are going to be able to control it is the hope that it gets out of their control or what yeah it's a good question and regarding the issues with the rockefeller foundation and so forth uh that's something that i'm sure you know much more about than i because uh i've only recently begun trying to study that sort of large-scale globalization conspiracy sort of people. And I I haven't studied it enough to really feel confident to voice any opinions about it. I do think that people like Kaczynski and Jacques Ellul, they do tend to really emphasize this idea that sort of human intentions and actions are secondary to technology and I think at times they they sort of overemphasize it because we know uh, enough now. I mean, you and I were talking uh, before the recording started that uh, there are these 
large-scale agendas, and the elite do think on multi-generational terms, and they do orchestrate large events. And so I think there is a danger of kind of overplaying this technological determinism argument. But I do, th- I, and I'm actually writing a review of Jacques Ellul and David Scribina's books, and one of my criticisms of Ellul in the review is that I think he sometimes overplays it. But I do think you can argue for a kind of modest technological determinism because every time with, with large scale industrial technology that requires whole societies to organize around it, to make it work, you do have a kind of modest determinism in that every time you have a problem and you bring in some sort of new technological device to try to address that problem, it's always going to have secondary consequences. And those consequences are going to involve new problems. And then you have to sort of bring in new technology to address those. So just to make it a little bit concrete here, if you engage in mass agriculture that involves heavy tillage and the use of petrochemicals, because you say, oh, well, we, you know, we have a, a, a food shortage or we have inconsistent um, uh, harvests or that sort of thing. So we're, we're going to up the technology level of our agriculture, which is, you know, the, the staff of life, right? The, the basic thing you need to have society. Well, once you start doing that, you're going to over time damage your soil. You're going to cause it to degrade and erode. Then you say, okay, well, now our soil is going to shit. I'm sorry, I, I should have asked you beforehand <laughs> if, curs- if cursing was okay. And you can absolutely say that. My virgin okay, ears. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I well, get to I platform if, from time you know, to time. Some people want to have a show that people can have their kids around and stuff. So, yes, yes. Um, I would, we're, uh, we'd be scaring the kids, but not bad okay. words. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so then, then you say, okay, we, well, we, we need fertilizer. So then you're going to be extracting organic matter from somewhere else. You're going to be transporting it. So now you're depleting the uh, uh, an ecosystem elsewhere where you're mining organic matter, or you're using petrochemicals, which are going to have toxic cascades. Now you need a transport network to bring that from point A to point B where your soil is depleted. And so you see it has this kind of cascading effect. So now you're dependent on petrochemicals. Well, that means you need to do mineral extraction somewhere Wherever you do that mineral extraction, you're going to destroy the local habitat. If it's on someone else's land, then you're going to have to either bargain with them or aggress against them somehow. So you can see how the more you use, the more you need to use. And the same is not true with sort of pre-industrial human scale technology, where you're mostly you're using natural materials. You have few or no non-biodegradable wastes. You can have uh, all the technology needs met by small, smaller communities rather than having to have this sort of vast infrastructure that requires the coordination of many human beings, which usually leads to the coercion and bureaucracy managing those many human beings and so forth. So um, to answer your question of will it uh, get out of their control, is it out of their control? I mean, the elites still have to by having such a large, complex world system, they do confine their own choices in a way, right? They have to, when you're um, at the top of a brutal hierarchy, your your um, actions are sort of determined by that structure that you're acting in. And if you don't act in yes. a certain way, you're going to be replaced or, or you know, pounced upon. I think they spend most of their effort making sure 
that that status quo hierarchy stays in place, even though actually with all this technology, it's almost like a contradiction in that by expanding all the technology, perhaps there needs to be uh, maybe that would naturally arise into a different structure. But they I mean, I've read the report from Iron Mountain is a, is a great place to try for that, that they talk about how do you suppress the impact that nuclear weapons has on reducing war and still <laughs> maintain this hierarchy that we sit atop that was built on war. So they don't talk about a new structure. They talk about maintaining their structure despite the technology that they introduced. Right. I have a quick question. I have a lot, a lot of questions. It's all very interesting. <laughs> For this question, you talked about the technology, the relationships with people versus the relationships people have with technology. And right now, Monica alluded to this, that technology is being pushed on us hardcore right now. Virtual everything, virtual work, virtual yeah. school, virtual dating even. I'm seeing commercials for that. Graduating with robots or walking for you as your virtual face is on the I, robot. I see that. That's crazy. It, what kind of impact do you think that it's like a merging of trying to your personal relationships through technology, which it's it's a different type of interaction. What kind of impact do you think that this is going to have on people and society just broadly? Yeah, sure. Yeah. And all of that stuff that you mentioned, it it's disturbing to see how much of it is being accompanied by this really quite, from my point of view, heavy handed mainstream media message where we keep seeing week after week in one or another of the the uh, mainstream news channels, this kind of, oh, we're not going back to normal, or maybe social distancing is here to stay. or uh, And so there's that kind of um, problem, reaction, solution, and then normalization step, right? Yeah. And I, I think the effect on it is pretty clear. I mean, we see... So many times, um, these studies coming out, and this was before all the corona weirdness, about how uh, Generation Z seems to be having the most problems in terms of suicide, in terms of teen depression. Um, people have fewer friends than they used to. They spend less time with their friends than they used to. We have more people living alone and, and uh, when I am making these comments, I'm speaking specifically about the United States because that's what I know the most about, but I think you would find similar phenomena elsewhere. Um, and in some ways, there, the, some of the East Asian societies like Japan are even ahead of us with a lot of this stuff. They have that uh, mass uh, hikikomori phenomenon. Are you familiar with this? No. No. Uh, they have this phenomenon where it, it's mostly men, but not entirely, people who live... Uh, as self-isolating lives as they possibly can. It, it's uh, Hikikomori translates roughly to shut-in, like being a shut-in. And so you have these people who they will not work, they will not leave the rooms unless they're forced to. They have these sort of fully online gaming lives, and they have the official figures are in the hundreds of thousands of people doing this. But I've heard from a number of... Um, Japanese people that I know personally who say it's much higher and that the, the government is underreporting it. So you have this mass psychological effect from the technology where depression is increasing. Uh, suicide is the eighth highest cause of death in the United States. And I believe this is because of a kind of death of community. We have um, 
so much loneliness and it gets in this reciprocal feedback loop with the technology. The lonelier you are, the more time you spend using it, doing this gaming or pornography or social networking. And then the more you do those things, the more depressed and you tend to become and the more thin your relationships become. Many people in my generation, millennials, I uh, can't recall the figure, unfortunately, but it's the the highest generation to date of people who say they have not one close friend in whom they feel they can confide in about their problems. I mean, that's crazy. Wow. Well, and I would layer on top of that, which I think was another thing, a Kaczynski concept, which was that as the the system gets further and further away from your from the human capacity to contribute to it, the human being is stressed. So they have to mm. augment the human being with antidepressant drugs to yeah. handle the stress. Yeah. Maybe even, you know, implants. We all wear eyeglasses, you know, is an easy way to see that. <laughs> but it's, but, you know, they're going to put chips in your brain. That's going to be, you know, the eyeglasses. And I, so I think that it's both things. It's that it's isolating and that has psychic damage, but also your work becomes something that you're barely able to do and still stay human. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we evolved in a way to use our whole bodies. I mean, that's what's healthy for us to be mobile, to be using our bodies as well as our minds, to be using all of our senses. And most people, their type of work does not involve that. I mean, many people have desk jobs, right? They are specifically not mobile all day. And in fact, they, they have to do that in order to, uh, to make a living. And they are just using their eyes and their hands and their fingers and, of course, their minds as well. But, uh, you know, this is a person who is going to end up developing chronic illnesses over time from being sedentary and from staring at a screen all the time. And I mean, you know, why, as you said, why do so many of us need uh, corrective lenses? It's because we're, we're almost always using our near sight rather than far sight. Yeah. I get on the computer for so long or on my phone. I just got to, I got to take a break. I got to roll around the grass or something. I, I feel the effects of what you're saying. What was the name of that phenomenon again? Hikikomori. It's, um, I believe it's H I K K H I K. I, I, I can't spell it in my head. Okay. I, I just need the first <laughs> few. I can find it. Hikikomori. We'll find yeah. it. That, that's we'll interesting. It. I, that reminded me of this story I saw in Japan where a man married an anime character. <laughs> And he invited wow. his family. Yeah. Well, that makes sense then. I mean, that's what the Corona times are. That's what they're doing to us. And I was saying today on our show, I was like, I'm kind of getting used to it. Like I literally yeah. am buying different kinds of clothes. Like I'm just yeah. like, I'm not wearing jeans to sit around the house. Like, I mean, I, and I'm starting to think, I was like, I can wear like those, you know, uh, Roby things that like, you know, gurus where you could just like hang out yeah. because and it's and I mean, it, on the one hand, that could be a health thing. But on the other hand, <laughs> it might not be pajama but, sales have skyrocketed. I saw that yesterday. But oh, really? But I would say one thing that I noticed with with the this um, sense of alienation, whatever it starts sounding Marxist, but as a as a mom, I went to graduate school until I was. T I know I can't. I always, oh, you know, I, I the person's ideas. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's okay with you. You're not going to be offended. But I, I I always I went to graduate school until I was like thirty, 
And I was an investment banker and stuff like that. And like something in me wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. Like I just always, since I was a little girl, wanted to be a mom. And so I really would never pursue that kind of a career because I wanted to stay home. And and I noticed when I did stay home, maybe this is just me, maybe this isn't a universal phenomenon, but for me, like I got so much more satisfaction out of like mm. setting my own schedule and keep it like I, I would even joke. I was like, I keep the cave clean. You know, I roast the antelope. He kills the antelope. <laughs> you know, nothing has changed at all. The dogs like, you know, they alert and they keep the thing clean. And I just I felt a much greater sense of satisfaction. I started to realize why people would want to quote work for themselves or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. And, and then I started to realize like there is a certain primitive um, value and autonomy in what I'm doing that is highly connected to the value I'm nurturing my offspring and it's, it feels right. And I feel the same thing about, you know, people get so excited. They grow a single freaking tomato. It takes them a year yeah. and they're just like, oh, I grew the, let us, let us honor and cherish this tomato. <laughs> like there's something yeah. about, about the satisfaction of doing something correct. And I just feel like that's that the antithesis is what we're what we're all being directed into. And they have such a stranglehold over the mind of the youth. So one of the things I wanted to ask you is like, I'm coming around to what Pete Kinona said, like he, he's no longer calling himself an anarchist. He's going to call himself an uh, or he has become an agorist, which I still I, I don't. I don't know enough about it to actually label myself such, but I, I'm an aspiring agorist, I think. And I feel like, but maybe, you know, I'm kind of too old to learn how to grow an avocado tree or, or wait for a pear tree to bear fruit. They say pear trees are for grandchildren. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but my kids are teenagers and they could walk the path that you're walking. But mm-hmm. if you can't plug in an Xbox to that pear tree, you ain't getting my kid anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's the, you know, what's the, what's the awakening? You sound like you got awakened quite young, but, you know, what do you, do you see this whole Corona times thing as moving us in any kind of more like deeply greenly woke direction? <laughs> uh, that is a good question. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, okay, well, I guess I, I don't know what camp you're in if you think, you know, the virus is is a naturally occurring phenomenon as the official narrative is, or if you think that there was, you know, that it escaped from the lab. Or I'm even beyond the- any of that. I actually question the the what we're told about viruses in general. And so oh, from okay. the very okay. beginning of this thing, I was not really worried about it as killing 65 million people like the event 201 scenario implied because i mean i think you have to be fundamentally weak to really get that sick from what they call a virus so Mm -hmm. i don't think it came from a lab i think that um i do i think that there's a narrative that is not true around it but i'm not like fundamentally fearful of the sickness okay are you an hiv skeptic is this the my brother died of oh. AIDS, they say, and uh, he insisted it was AZT. He had no symptoms. He took AZT. And ever since then, I've noticed that I don't know anybody who died of AIDS who did not take AZT. So, yes, I'm a bit of an HIV skeptic. Okay. I'm reading Peter uh, yeah, Duesberg's I... book, Reinventing the AIDS Virus, right now. Okay, I can't speak to any of this because it's not something I've studied. Um, I do think that the the idea of pandemics as a 
as a general phenomenon, whether you, whatever one thinks about this particular one, it is kind of an implicitly green anarchist uh, friendly, so to speak, phenomenon in that what, what many of us have been saying for years is this idea that you, you can't have this deeply unnatural way of life and this uh, highly dense population centers and that sort of thing without eventually getting some kind of major blowback just as a result of ecological feedback. So, Well, I would like this... to say that I actually think that's closer to what I think AIDS is, that I mm. think that these things that make us so sick are a, a function of the artificial environment. I don't think mm -hmm. that it's a standalone microbial phenomenon. I think that we are weak and, and we are bombarded by these artificial things and we're just not designed to deal with them. And we also are not nourished to guard against them. And, and we're not even, I don't think they're even being honest with us about, about it. And so we we're doubly unarmed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you get these strange diseases like chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, which, you know, it's as if you're just sort of generally screwed up in your body and you get these mental illnesses, like I said, depression before, and you have at least some set of people who come from this very materialist perspective who say, oh, you know, depression is just a problem with your brain chemistry. I mean, it's not a problem with your brain chemistry. It's that we are giving people a way of life that is bereft of meaning. It, we're giving people a way of life that doesn't actually meet the deepest human needs. And someone is reacting to that in this global psychological way, even if they don't know exactly what the problem is, even if they can't name it themselves. Um, as for whether this will wake people up in the way that I would like it to, I don't know, because it, uh, unfortunately, I'm seeing how much it's just like everything, it gets sucked into this culture wars narrative. Yes. And I think the culture wars narrative is one of the most powerful psychological weapons that the yes. elite have. And it's as if there's almost nothing that can happen that maybe, I guess Jeffrey Epstein's death is one of the only recent events that kind of escaped the culture wars. Almost everything yeah. else just gets sucked into this vacuum of, you know, oh, uh, oh you know, one, one set of people are protesting. Well, you know, those people are fascists and Trump supporters and they're going to get us all killed. And then, you know, the flip side of it is, oh, you're afraid of the disease. Well, that's because you're uh, some sort of sentimental wimp and so forth. <laughs> Lazy. Um, yeah, and it just doesn't it 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 ruins and it, the revelatory potential of these phenomena by just obfuscating them into okay, you can have two or maybe three views about this, and it has to be tied to your political tribe. But you know, and it, and it's a brilliant way for them to cover up any contribution they make to the catastrophe by mm -hmm. kind of owning this idea of hoax or conspiracy theory, putting things out there that uh, touch on some of the truths in the theory that they were behind it. Not, I mean, they basically advertise the fact. So it's uh, barely theory, but they certainly but then they take that and they they assign that to one of the sides 
and and put that next to a person with a swastika and then you've got <laughs> yeah. it's just a disaster but before i just want to say one thing i read an article recently about how working in dirt is it uh, has is correlated with the reduced depression. So like if you <laughs> don't want to take Prozac or, or, or allergies from the garden. And I just thought, yes, it's, yeah. <laughs> they're yeah, like well, scratching their further study is needed. It said, I was like, I, I think we get it. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the funniest things for me recently has been this, um, you know, in a, in a sort of new agey type circles and that kind of thing that this term has come out forest bathing, which there it's, Literally, this idea of, oh, you go out in the woods and it will make you feel better. And the idea that this has to be understood as this niche health exercise that you can do for yourself, that to me shows how deeply, I'm going to use the word alienated, we are from the natural world that you would think of, oh, I'm going to go do some forest bathing as if it's this eccentric, idiosyncratic activity that you do for your health rather than just being part of what it means to be a human being. And I and I wonder, too, <laughs> if that makes it quite elite in that mm-hmm. I saw the same yeah, sure. thing when yeah. I was growing up in New York, upstate New York and from Rockland County. And behind my house, we weren't rich, we were poor, but like behind my little house was a lot of woods. And yeah. I can still see the woods behind my mother's house. But if you walk like three feet in, if it, or if it's in the winter, you can see that it's just all houses behind there now. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you, and so when I was little, I could go into the woods and we had right. like, you know, would find old couches and drag them back there. And, you know, they're disgusting. Mm-hmm. But we had some kind of sense of that. But now it seems that anything that would be like large and foresty is is land either owned by the government or by Warren yes. Buffett, or there's yes. these beauty strips that are just alongside that there's actually almost no way. And then the environmental movement talk about like having uh, I the culture war. It makes it, I was raised to be a conservationist is what my father would say, not an environmentalist, but like to have that respect for God's creation kind of. And mm-hmm. it, it makes people immediately turn off who are on one side of the political spectrum or the other that an environmentalist will call attention to the, they'll say we need more national parks. And I, I don't, because I don't trust the government. I don't really think that's the answer. I feel like that's taking everything actually offline. And what you need is a more decentralized ownership of this stuff. And I feel like we just don't, my upshot is I feel like we don't have access to forest bathing. It has to be a destination. It has to be a vacation. Mm -hmm. You have to make an appointment. You probably have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. What they've done a little bit to prevent people from going out into nature, especially right now, is they're promoting stuff like virtual hiking trails, oh, virtual God. rivers, God. experience nature virtually. <laughs> they're, they're, for, therefore, you don't have to actually go outside. And yeah, don't forget so you're just murder me hornets. Worse things that I didn't even know about. <laughs> yeah, and there's murder hornets, and they're telling you that they had this argument if UV was good for you or bad for you. I, I understand people get skin cancer and needs to use sunscreen. I get that, but I almost feel like you were saying, yeah, you know, we think that the connection with nature, a pandemic, is like a normal thing. I think vitamin D deficiency, telling us never to expose yes. ourselves to the sun. I mean, it it is. It, I don't believe it's an evil plot designed purely to make people depressed, miserable, and unhealthy. But if that's what they were after, they couldn't think of a better way to do it. Right. Right. And and then you 
not even in Corona times, just in so-called normal times, you have people buying vitamin D supplements and taking them. And right. You get this whole sort of health consumerism lifestyle among. Yes. And does that even work? Like, I don't even know if that, I, I always heard it doesn't really work to just consume it like that. You have to, and then you're not even in outside. Like part of right. it, it's not just the vitamin D. It's the fact that you want to go right. outside. But I'll tell you, the thing that upsets me the most in my entire life ever is the freaking chemtrails. Like I cannot stand it. So I know you're not as conspiracy oriented as I am, but do you not recognize or are you, do you agree with me? There's, it's kind of self-evident that they're, they're spraying stuff in the skies. It's not something I've ever looked into and I, I can't speak to it. Oh, I, okay. Um, I, mean, I would yeah, have thought I, that the aluminum raining down on your forest would <laughs> mess up your... I'm serious. Like, they find aluminum, like, in soil everywhere, even though it, there's no explanation for it. Yeah, I have uh, two friends who insist to me that this is true. And it's something that when I when I first heard about it... So, I I assume that you believe that disinformation is put out there, right? Uh, you... I saw yeah, like contrails your... is a cover up for chemtrails. Well, I saw on your on your Twitter feed that you it looks like you think that the the pandemic yes. documentary mm-hmm. was disinfo. Okay, so I think well, that... I think it was like a false flag thing. I don't think I don't think that she's. I think she's not genuine. I think she deliberately went out there to make people who question the official narrative of COVID seem crazy and lying that's what i think okay yeah i mean it, it was weird how they walked it back only a couple of days after letting the film get out there um okay so when i first heard about the chemtrails thing i quickly assumed okay this is just sort of bullshit that gets sprayed at us either intentionally or it's just stuff that kind of bubbles up from uh, people's general paranoia. And I think it's reasonable that, that people are experiencing paranoia because we're lied to all the time. Yep. Um, but I didn't pay any attention to it. And then the past couple of years, I had two friends say, Oh no, no, you need to look into this. It's really real. So I, I have, I guess I will just say, I have no opinion about it because I don't know. Yeah. It's been only a couple of years. I felt the same way. I was like, that is crazy stuff. It's a harp, whatever you say that stuff. You sound crazy. I'm not buying that. And I yeah. just could not <laughs> deny what was ha- like. You could watch the sky. And then as soon as the Corona times thing happened, I was like, just check out the yeah. sky and see if everything's you know greener and bluer. And, and it has been. And I just, it, it seems obvious to me now, but it's it taken a couple of years for it to just sink in. But I, I figured it would impact your actual way of life. Monica <laughs> mentioned your forest. I don't assume she was being literal in that, but... What's permaculture? Yeah. Do you live kind of... Are you a survivalist out in the out in the woods type of thing going on? Uh, no, no. It, it's more like a... I guess probably the best term for it would be like homesteading. Okay. Um, so I, I live on a piece of land in upstate New York and... Um, yeah, so we're doing a permaculture approach to kind of are you familiar with the, the term agroforestry um i am so not. so basically we're we're growing a substantial amount of our own food and over time it will increase because rather than being focused on annual crops i mean we do grow annuals 
but rather than doing something where you're doing annual monoculture where it's like you have a whole series of rows of kale plants and then you have a whole series of rows of carrots and so forth it's more like it looks it it looks a little bit more wild so things are sort of growing polyculturally and we're also quite focused on perennials rather than annuals so rather than plants that grow for a season and then you harvest them and that's it. These are plants that um, grow for many years. So things like chestnut trees, hazelnuts, hickory nuts, walnuts, persimmons, pears, apples, uh, plums, mulberries, and then perennial vegetables like Turkish rocket, good King Henry, um, sunchokes, valerian, stinging nettle. And the idea is that by growing these perennials, you are actually building soil over time rather than having to do tillage. And you also, you have a, how do I put this? You have um, a system that builds on itself over time rather than needing regular inputs of uh, human, I mean, there is human labor, but when you're growing annuals, there's a lot more labor input and energy input because you have to do it year after year after year rather than, okay, I am growing a tree. When I first plant it, it's very vulnerable and it needs a lot of care. But then once it reaches a certain size, it pretty much takes care of itself. And then as it grows larger, you're getting uh, larger and larger yields from it. Um, and so I guess I would say permaculture, it's kind of like, uh, it's one of these words like anarchism where, you know, everyone wants to kind of define it a particular way. And uh, just like with anarchism, it's kind of an umbrella term for a lot of different tendencies. I would say permaculture is kind of like that too, but I've, I had to put it briefly. I would say it's an ecological design schema that's based on thinking in whole systems rather than in parts mm. and combining traditional knowledge from um, various cultures, whether indigenous cultures or uh, traditional agriculture societies and, and combining that with modern scientific knowledge and, also a set of ethics um, related to relating to the biosphere that lead you to creating food and fuel systems and designing uh, shelters in a way that mimics and meshes with the local ecology and ultimately the biosphere as a whole, rather than so much of what we do now, which is basically resisting that. <laughs> and um, I was going to go ahead. Yeah. Got Okay. I was going to ask you if it extended to like the structures that you live in. And I, I noticed this, I walk around and I think about it. I, I've been to England a few times and I've seen structures that say like built in 1647. And I, and it occurred to me, mm. it's like, you know, we really should only have to build stuff yes. for the extra people. Like we're tearing stuff down and rebuilding yes. it all the time. It just, you know, in a, in a community, you should really have so much surplus. So such leisure time. But of course, I think that things like government built infrastructure, suppressed and subsidized interest rates, tax incentives, create all these incentives to tear stuff down and build it up again. I don't, I, for, in, for two reasons. One, I think that it, it destroys culture, which they like because it keeps us looking up to them instead of at each other. Yes. But also just if you want to think from a venal point of view, 
transactions are where they can skim. They can, if you're not making any mm. transactions, if you're using all of your all of your surplus in leisure, they can't take a piece of that. But if you're using it in consumption, they get some of that. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I agree with you that there's a, a multi-generational effort to destroy culture, to destroy uh, anything that really is outside of the state corporate complex, because the more you have of uh, so-called civic society, the more you have um, relations with your environment, as you said, it, it's it's as if um, anywhere that they can't get in, they see as threatening. I noticed I was reading this book about LBJ, who's mm. just universally held as a bad guy. The book was too long. I'm not even interested in him. Was but it I the, started... um, the Path to Power? It could be. It's like two yeah. volumes, right? It was yeah. so huge and everybody raved about it. So I was trying to plow through, but life was too short. I got I got through some of it, though. And in the beginning, it was like, yeah, he was a complete piece of crap, whatever. But he did <laughs> reach into these rural communities where people basically didn't have shoes and sat off the porch with their inbred kids and played the banjo and, and died of plague or whatever. And I and I and I remember at the moment, you know, I have no socialist tendencies at all. But like, uh, you know, however, your mechanism is to lift people up, I, I was thinking it could would be generally considered a good thing. And I was thinking I had a I have a good friend who was a missionary priest in Peru for like 50 years. And he was always trying to like help the Indians. And he, and I would mm-hmm. say to them, why are, what are you doing? Like, why are you, what are you trying to help them? It's like, well, they need like medicine. They need this, they need that. And I try to get my mind around, see, I feel like that we reach into the rural areas because we want them connected, they, that the system doesn't like them being out there autonomous and maybe even free thinking. But on the mm-hmm. other hand, are they poor? Are they suffering? Like, is it wrong to pull them up. And then I started thinking maybe LBJ was wrong to, you know, it was bad. It's a bad thing because I do like culture. I do like that thing where it's, I I don't respect materialism and um, I think it's totally valid choice to choose leisure and autonomy over image and wealth, like uh, whatever you Mm -hmm. want. I don't, you know, whatever you want, but I just wonder about like, is primitive the same as poor are people who don't have money sick because of the, the, you need it to access? It's kind of like a unwieldy question there, but if you got the gist of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's a good question. And I think it gets down to these kind of fundamental values questions. You know, what is life really about and what constitutes a good life? And I think many people would say that some level of material comfort is at least a significant part of a good life. If not, uh, I mean, hopefully most people would say it's not the most important thing. I think that to some extent, poverty is a kind of social condition. And I think we need to be careful when we look at people who are not so integrated into the system and seem to be suffering, um, whether that's not some kind of byproduct. So for example, um, the, the San, uh, also known as the, the Kalahari Bushmen, um, are people who until recently have been quite un, unintegrated and living a fairly traditional way of life. 
And my understanding is that some of them still are, but most of them are not. And they um, were, were of great interest in anthropologists because of how they had, had lasted longer than uh, most indigenous societies leaving, living a relatively traditional way of life. And one of the things that was commented on was that um, they would sometimes go for long periods without, um, uh, they would go through these lean times, but you find out later on that they were pushed by the surrounding state societies and agricultural societies into some of the worst uh, hunting and gathering land. And so, yeah. So you, and then you also th- see, you know, things like pollution and toxicity leaking into these places. Um, That's actually what happened to these Peruvian Indians is that yeah. they, they started building fences far, kind of far away on the mountains and everything. And then the wildlife couldn't move around anymore. Right. And they all of a sudden became impoverished. And then you st- then you go to the what I think is the fundamental question of all politics and ideology is like, what is the origin of property rights? So mm. do they have a right to like this huge amount of land because they have this inefficient, quote, lifestyle? Mm-hmm. But yeah, so. So, yes, they were yeah, pushed out. That's... And then what do you do? <laughs> yeah, that seems to to um, be the perennial rationale for uh larger status societies antagonizing, uh, you know, relatively less authoritarian people. That's actually the same justification that was given frequently for uh, the colonization of America and, and pushing out. What else could they say? (laughs) Yeah. And it was the same with um, England antagonizing Ireland. Actually, they said, uh, Oh, they're letting all this land go to waste and, you know, <laughs> so forth. Oh, that's so. Irish. I'm a citizen of Ireland. I take personal offense at England's oh, really? treatment of Ireland. <laughs> You're a citizen. So of yeah, I, isn't that weird? I, I, my yeah. grandparents were Irish, although by my name and my appearance, you wouldn't believe it. And when I tweeted uh-huh. my joy at getting my kids passports, like I was, <laughs> I guess there are some. <laughs> I think there were trolls, but Irish isolationists who was like. You're not Irish. (laughs) Payback's a bitch, buddy, because my ancestors came over here and were welcomed. Yeah. So, yeah, I do. I do care about that. But they I think that that is, of course, what they have to say about colonizing, because what else could they 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 care very much like that system cares very much for the strict adherence to property rights. And mm-hmm. how can you violate that basic tenet? I mean, you, you had absolutely no right to come onto this entire continent. You have ab- no, well, I guess you would say you mix your sort of toil with the soil, but if there were people already there, so you'd have to say that be fruitful and multiply, which gets back to a question that I wanted to ask, which is uh, that is it, is there a, do you think that there is, that the population is of earth 7 billion people are absolutely i mean what would the population have to be to live the way you live i mean that's a big yeah that's question. that's a tricky question um one of the big figures in permaculture he's now deceased robert hart who was uh, i believe he was british uh actually i'm almost 100 sure he was he um interestingly was also had anarchist leanings as uh, a few of the as as no small number of people in the permaculture milieu do and robert hart argued that overpopulation 
was essentially a myth that was used to control us. And he did some fuzzy math as one does and came up with a figure that I can't recall that was based on what he claimed was a kind of conservative estimate of the amount of arable land on the earth. And uh, that total surface area divided by the number of people and ended up saying, look, if we, we could all be doing this and could be surviving, I can't speak to that because I don't know. I, you know, I, I just don't have the expertise to assess something like that. But it doesn't but seem you couldn't dismiss that out of hand. Just I, I, I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand. I also think we ideally um, what we would do is try to have a soft landing out of this. So what I would like to see, because I think, I think it does take, it's going to take a huge psychological adjustment and a huge skills adjustment to move toward the, the kind of life way that I would like to see people having. And so ideally we would have a soft landing where people would, um, you know, I think stuff like agorism, I think that's great. Um, people trying to increase their autonomy on an individual level, a small group level, a kind of local regional level by doing more of this kind of stuff. And I think what that looks like for a particular person is going to depend totally on their context. It's not like there's some recipe book, but I think almost anyone could do a little bit and, um, what we would I ideally have is a kind of deceleration and like a, a slow easing off of technology. You could use the kind of analogy of an addiction. You know, you're a, if you're an extremely heavy drinker, rather than trying to go cold Turkey, you say, okay, well, what if I only have X number of drinks this week and then X minus five and, you know, so forth. Um, so, and uh, there are green anarchists who are, um, hardcore primitivists who think the only, you know, true freedom and integration with the biosphere is a sort of hunting gathering way of life. I, I don't think that's possible because our, um, our, our biosphere is so damaged now. I, I just don't think that's possible. And I also don't think it's necessary. And we have a different world now. We have different people now. Um, we have evolved since then, even though some people think that we haven't. And um, we also have this situation where plant genetics are just all over the place now. Like the, we have access to these plants from all over the world. And uh, so do people all over the rest of the world. And so in some ways, um, like we could, we could, reforest the world in a way that would be new in certain ways. Um, and I think that it, it will actually make it easier in some ways because we have all these useful plants that uh, were normally geographically isolated. Let me ask you this. What practical advice would you give to an aspiring homesteader? Somebody who, I should say this, somebody who wants to start to learn to grow their own food, where would they start in your opinion? Um, okay. I, I think, uh, <laughs> Uh, one of the, the biggest things is to really observe and think, and <laughs> this this is probably the advice people don't want to hear, but um, <laughs> to it's a combination of move slowly and experiment. So uh, if you you want to 
learn about the land that you're on, learn, learn about, you know, how many sunlight hours you get throughout the year, do uh, soil analysis, which is, is not actually that expensive. Um, they do it out of, uh, ooh, the university, I think it's the university of Massachusetts Amherst. I think, um, it can be done on a home level. It's not terribly expensive. Um, and, and sort of study and carefully consider things before you make any big moves, because if you make, it takes a lot more work to undo mistakes that you make than to just take more time. But at the same time, experiment with small things. Like don't fall into an analysis paralysis. Like if you're curious about um, a certain number of plants, just try growing a small number of them and it won't require this huge investment of time and resources. And you'll, you'll learn things really quickly by doing them and, and having things go wrong or having things go right. Um, So there's, um, there's a lot on, of, if you have an internet connection, there's a, which presumably you do if you're listening to the show, <laughs> there, there are a lot of resources out there that are free. Um, there's loads of stuff on YouTube. If that's your thing, there are a lot of, um, uh, PDFs and that kind of thing. If, if you're more of a reader out there, if you just start looking for, uh, permaculture, agroforestry, forest gardening stuff, you'll find lots of information out there. And I guess I would say also try to find people in your area who are doing things. Um, you know, we, we were talking about the social isolation beforehand. Well, a lot of people don't know people who have shared interests in their area, but, uh, there are the one thing that the internet is good for is actually arranging for real world meetups by, you know, just joining interest groups. If you can find someone in your area who's already doing gardening or farming or permaculture, you'll, they will be a huge uh, resource because they'll have already tried a lot of things. And then that way you'll start forming these social connections that are really important for resilience. Because I mean, the only way I think that we're going to uh, defeat the state is by, you know, reforming cultures that exist outside of it. Do you find that there are increasing zoning laws or other resistance? Cause I know, I don't, I know you said that you haven't spent a lot of time digging into some of the bigger picture globalist plots, but there is UN Agenda 2030, there was UN Agenda 21, yeah. but before that there was Habitat 1 and Habitat 2, and Habitat 1 said they wanted to take all the arable land offline. They don't. They want people to own their own personal belongings, but anything that can grow something is just too valuable to be in the hands of individuals. And I kind of worry that as we that as as you they see that your philosophy as a threat, mm. or even just and their and their urge to do this sustainability thing, haha, <laughs> they will encroach on your your liberty to do this just even on your own property. Yeah, that's a good question. So is this part of, um, you're actually the, I, I went on the show, um, free markets, green earth, or sorry, free, yeah, free markets, green planet, I think it's called, um, earlier this week, and they brought up the uh, agenda 2030 thing. So obviously I have, I have to look into this because you're the second person to bring it up this week. Um, is, is part of this, the idea that we're going to, uh, move everyone into the cities? Is that- yes. 
Yes, yeah, and then yeah. you don't you won't have any, that's one of the things where they want driverless cars because you won't own your own driverless car, so you won't be able to get out. Oh, You'll wow. be in that system where everything's regulated. Even the buildings aren't going to have niches. They'll be under total surveillance all the time, and they tie. When you look at what the agendas are, you can see how it ties into a lot of the way the propaganda spins stories. So if mm-hmm. you if you familiarize yourself with it. You'll probably bum a little bit, so maybe, maybe just stay in a happier place. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> but I, it's not as laid out. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, all knowledge is good if it's true. Yes, um, I'm so, not afraid either. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess my I'm even though I'm a how do I put this? Even though I'm a luddite. I'm also a little bit of a tech skeptic. Like I feel like we see time and again that they, you know, whether it's Elon Musk or someone else, um, what's his name? Ray Kurzweil saying like, Oh, you know, all of this um, paradigm changing technology is right around the corner. It's right around the corner. A lot of times it, it, it doesn't quite get there. You know, I, I've um, seen some stuff that the driverless car thing is not going so well, and they're more it ends up being a more difficult problem to solve than they think it is. So sometimes I, I hear this stuff and I think, well, th- this is such hubris. It you know it probably won't work the way that they want it to. It's extremely difficult to rationally plan societies from the top, even when you're doing this kind of uh, fancy Rockefeller style social engineering. So you know, on the one hand, I, I'm a little bit of a doomist who thinks that uh, a lot of this stuff might start to crumble under its own contradictions. Um, but I, I don't think that that's an excuse for passivity. I mean, I think we we need to be doing as much as we possibly can. And what I would love to see is some kind of mass secession, withdrawal, agorism, uh, decreased dependence on the dominant economy in the state, coupled with it starting to come apart under its own contradictions. Um, you know, as for what you're describing, I, I don't know enough about it to address it specifically. Yeah. Well, what I'm, you're answering my question. I'm thinking what I'm hearing is we have time. And, and so if you were to reforest, if people did have, <laughs> if, I don't mean reforest the whole earth, but like if you could carve out your own place, like an, like a, a reservation that you might be able to grandfather yourself in and live side by side. And the reason I think that you're might that you're right. I, I am really afraid of like how fast the tech, uh, the surveillance and censorship states are state is going. Yeah. And I feel like yeah. once surveillance is perfect, any kind of resistance will be difficult. Yeah. Uh, maybe futile, but the fact that the propaganda machine is working so hard all the time, it makes me think that that is a mask for a deep sense of insecurity. Because if they really had the kind of control that I kind of worry that they have, I don't think they'd have to worry so much about what we think and getting our buy-in and pitting us against each other. So maybe there is time to grow a couple of pear trees. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been very revealing I think to have seen this year both in the Atlantic and the New York Times 
articles that are explicitly uh, sort of mask off saying we need to ditch the whole free speech paradigm. We need censorship. It's very important. And I think that does, I, I agree. It shows a kind of um, a kind of desperation to move things as quickly as possible. And I, I'm not sure exactly what that's about. Um, I, and it, I, I struggle to understand yeah. it in some ways because I, fe I feel like if I were on top, you know, I, I'd, I'd be, trying to move it by inches, you know, as slowly as possible. So people don't even really notice it. Um, so I don't know if that's an insecurity about the fact that old guard media seem to be dying and there's so much alternative media on the internet that people are accessing. And so there's a kind of insecurity about control over official truth. I don't know if it's an insecurity about uh, sort of, American empire having various problems, if it's an insecurity about um, like hitting ecological limits, it's hard for me to say. Well, I think they, I, I wonder sometimes if it's an, a generational or internet generational opportunity that they see that they've got this iGen rising mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. they've been weaned on their screens yeah. since they were babies. And I, I've made this connection before. My mother watches Fox News. My kids right. get everything from YouTube. I was there for the dawning of the internet. So I saw all the truth while it was sucking us into our addiction by thinking it was a good thing. And maybe they feel like this is the moment to kill off all the boomers and... <laughs> You know, I mean, that's what they're doing. And then convince this generation that they're giving checks for sitting around, plugging in and tuning out yeah. or tuning in, yeah. <laughs> plugging in and tuning in that they then take this opportunity to say, OK, everything's changing right now. You can't even keep up with all the changes. I think mm -hmm. that you're right about that, Monica. There's always two simultaneous methods that are going on that these propagandists and social engineers use. They use one, they try to legitimize what they're trying to push through. And then the other one is like you mentioned a moment ago, Bellamy, they try and do it subtly outside of people's awareness so that ultimately one day people look around and it is put in place, but it doesn't really impact them because it didn't happen all at once. The legitimization process is, is exactly what you're saying. When they see the opportunity, when more and more people are okay with what they're trying to push through, they put that message out there and people start asking for it and start agreeing with what they're saying, and then they can usher it in faster. Mm -hmm. And they'll, they'll push or pull on the things that are working. Yeah. They'll throw everything out there against the wall. When it doesn't stick, they'll come back to that later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I suspect what is I cut you off. coming down the pipe is some kind of universal basic income, as, as you were uh, hinting at, Monica, which is just to kind of make you comfortable with the transition. Yes, which they, oh. this is something that annoys me, is that they push the technology, they subsidize the technology, the Department of Defense puts so much into the universities building technology, then they tell us that, oops, technology is taking all of your jobs, here we're going to give you payoff, but we paid for that technology that took our jobs. That, right. that chafes right. me. Right, sure. So what, what do you, uh, I will just kind of wrap up with this question of, do you feel like, or can you give some you know, insight into how, as such a young person, you were willing to, I feel like you've kind of stepped out of the, gone off the grid, 
earlier than most people. And I and I wonder if there was an aha moment that maybe can help awaken younger people to, you know, who kind of still have the time to make make a good life out of it. Me, it would be just it would just be a, 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 a it would be a an act of psychic exhaustion rather than <laughs> you know, ennobling hope. And I, I want you to impart, if you would, some, some, something, you know, that might attract people to taking control of their lives in that way, having some insight, even if it's just a book to read a gateway book. Mm, okay. Your invitation um, to desertion, perhaps. <laughs> sure. I, I, I'd be happy for anyone to be reading that. Um, I think that does kind of summarize the case as I see it. I mean, I wrote that a few years ago. I've read it a little bit differently now. Um, I guess, yeah, I, I think I ended up doing this because I thought that it was the the sort of right. And, you know, I, it's not as if I'm completely off grid. Obviously, I'm speaking to you through the internet. I mean, I, I have electricity, my house and stuff. Um, but I guess I decided on this because I just thought, um, no matter what happens, we're going to need people who have built up autonomy outside of the normal economy, whether it's because the system starts to degrade and fall apart under its own contradictions. I mean, people are going to need, uh, food systems and knowledge, uh, how to create those food and fuel systems and, and grow building materials and that kind of thing. Um, if there ends up being some kind of, uh, you know, civil war or sort of mass insurrection scenario, people are going to need this kind of thing. If, um, if we're able to, you know, what I would, would like to see the, the kind of soft landing withdrawal strategy, people are going to need to be doing that. And, it's the kind of thing that, you know, basically I, de I decided to do this and do media. Um, it sometimes we think of, of doing the good as this kind of sacrifice, like, uh, you know, like you have to do the right thing, even though you don't really want to. I think that's a really backward and degraded morality. I mean, I think when you do the good, it makes your life better. And that's what I see myself doing. I mean, I, I'm happy doing what I do. I don't get up in the morning and think like, oh, I got to go, you know, whatever the task think, of the day is. I, you know, it's, I think it's you creative. Actually, you use your mind, you use your body. I think those are the two things. I think you hit on the two things that are really appealing to the whole person, to, the, to a real human being, a three-dimensional human being, which is that it isn't just a series of chores is how I kind of think of uh, growing stuff. But you're, the, first of all, the way you've cracked the code on that is, of course, brilliant and beautiful, but that it's an act of both a pursuit of knowledge and a repository of knowledge, building knowledge, which is very appealing to kids from what I see that they really like that a lot. And if you pour garbage into their brains, they'll suck it up like a sponge. But mm -hmm. if it's something inherently good, I think they recognize that. And uh, being creative, I think also is a need. And I, I'm not saying you just have to like finger painting, just whatever creation is. If it's a thought, <laughs> you're a beautiful writer, Bellamy, beautiful writer. That is clearly oh, an act well, of art. You. And I love it. 
And I can see that being very satisfying. And I and this repository of knowledge concept is so important. Someone recommended to me that I buy the Foxfire series just to have it mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. in books. Have you heard of this? The Foxfire yes, series? Yeah. 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 So it's this repository of of knowledge from like mountain people. I think I don't know if it's Appalachian or what. I just got it. So I, yeah, I think it's but it's this important repository of knowledge and and I just I think that that it is inherently appealing what you're saying and that you're happy. I believe it. Mm, in spite of so how <laughs> in spite yes, of everything. so how can people learn more about what you're doing and kind of access your stuff directly going forward for our listeners can you give us a little rundown of what's the best approach? yeah sure um i i have a really shitty little website that's um i'm, I'm gonna be working on it to make it a little better <laughs> um, it's it's bellamyfitzpatrick.com um and i'm gonna be adding links to it and so forth. Um, I started recently doing a a video show uh, with a friend who arrived at a similar position to mine by going through a right-wing path rather than uh, mine. You know, I I went through a left-wing path. I don't really consider myself left-wing or right-wing. I think he would say the same, but he went sort of the other way and arrived at the same, roughly the same conclusion. and that's called Liberty and Logos. We're on hiatus right now because he has a whole complex situation going on, but we're going to get back to doing it regularly. Um, I have a blog on there, and I also do a journal called Backwoods that is a print journal, print only. Um, and there are two issues out now, and I just created a new editorial collective to be working on the third. And if you want to know about any of these things i have a contact form on my website and you can just reach out to me through that i have really enjoyed liberty and logos so i hope that you oh, guys get back to you. that the, the funniest the funniest thing i i did have to give myself like let out a little chuckle as somebody called emailed you and kind of started taking shots at fire which i get it like when you you can just reduce <laughs> the technology thing to absurdity and then you answered yeah. well some people think that like green that I mean, gray matter was really our downfall. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and any ability for abstract thought kind of separated us yeah, from yeah. our most natural state. Yeah. So you can get absurd. So I was actually glad that you pointed out that it does not have to be that way, that there can be something accessible and hopeful about it. And I absolutely love the idea that we have some time and people, I think people, I think that there will be a a critical mass of people who are uh, awakened by what's happening here. It was very unnerving for me to realize how quickly the powers that be could just turn off the spigot of my most basic necessities. I mean, I don't would not know how to get clean water. I mean, I could not, I couldn't survive three days. Mm-hmm. So that woke me up. I mean, not, yeah. not enough to get off the couch because I'm, you know, but most Americans are getting paid to stay on the couch. So they're probably going to not wake up anytime soon, but I think there are plenty right. of people will. Yeah. And I wonder about the, this sort of normalization of universal basic income as a social control mechanism because you get people dependent on it and then you can just sort of, you know, turn it off or decrease it or whatever as a way to punish dissent. Um, and then at that point, maybe they just start sterilizing people without their knowledge. I mean, what do they need them for? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, that that I know is, um, I know in that, that sort of Rockefeller conspiracy world that I alluded to that I'm not familiar with, I know one of the 
the recurring ideas that seems to come up in that circle is that, that they need to de decrease the population to about 1 billion, which means, you know, one seventh of what it is now, right? Yeah, that's, let's hope that's a long term and not a short term <laughs> plan. <laughs> right. As a mom. Um, yeah, I, I, just to touch on the, um, what you brought up about the fire and stuff. Yeah, you can sort of rewind the technology thing as, as, as much as you want and sort of say like, oh, it was a mistake for us ever to have come out of the trees. Um, I will say that there are some interesting essays. I, I ultimately disagree with them and think that they're wrong. But there are some interesting essays by um, a kind of dissident public intellectual John Zerzan, who did look into the kind of almost as deeply as you can into looking at things like how does our concept of time function in an authoritarian way and the, and the way that we measure time. And some of it is very interesting stuff. Um, so I'll just give a, I, I a shout out to him. Yeah. I actually did not mean to come off mocking at that really, because I, uh, I questioning assumptions is the one thing that could probably save us. Yeah. That, that that's the essence of propaganda. People don't question that much they don't question what's actually the the propaganda on the surface much less the underlying assumptions once you start questioning assumptions it's a lot easier to understand what you know to be true and what you do not know to be true and sure. that's the beginning of true knowledge so i i i respect the person who thought of fire i didn't think about it. I, I hadn't thought of it if i if i had thought of it i would have written the email sure. but i but it is funny that you can just keep going back but i but i i would that idea of time, yes, because then that connects to the kind of next dimensional thinking, which we, we might have to save for another time. And sure, sure. I'll ask you about I'll I'll ask you about panpsychism next time if you'll <laughs> sure. do it. And sure, and sure. I just love I really appreciate your time. I I I'm love exploring your work. I I think I, I might have to get your print publication. I, I do feel like that that will be my step. That'll be crossing over the line. I will join you as a yeah. pre-tech Luddite. Yeah, the, the water's so, fine. <laughs> yes, I know. I believe it. So thank you so much, Bellamy. I really, really yeah. appreciate it. And um, I hope that people will visit your site. And I'm really looking forward to your next episode of Liberty and Logos. Oh, thank you. Thanks a lot, Bellamy. Yeah, thank you.